Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. Last episode, we told you of the horrifying events that took place in Edgar Allan Poe's classic, The Murders in the Room Morgue. And I'm Glenn McDormand. And in this episode, we are going to dive deep into this story in our discussion. And we have a lot to say about The Murders in the Room Morgue, its place in the development of weird fiction, but also its utility as a lens onto the 19th century. Well, Glenn, I'm excited to get going on this. So I have three big categories that I want to talk about in our discussion, Brandon. I'll, I'll lay out what they are here, and then we'll, we'll start at the beginning. One of these is the idea of globalization as a source of the strange. And then the second big category that I want to talk about is science and rationality as a new worldview. And then I think we'll try to finish with something a little lighter than either of these two categories, Brandon. I think we'll finish by completing really the work that we've already started, which is to point out all of the connections that this story has with the work of H.P. Lovecraft. I love that you pulled those topics out of this story. I, I, I was kind of focused on a lot of the literary technique, and I'm really excited about this first topic in particular, so all right, well, let's we, dive into it. All right, well, we can talk literary technique as well, but let's start with globalization as a source of the strange. And I just want to start with a question for you that comes straight from the text. So as I pointed out, when the narrator understands that an orangutan is the murderer, not a human. Poe says that he understands the full horror. And the question I have for you is, how is this more horrifying than if a human had done it? I think Poe tries to explain that Dupin's creative impulses lack empathy, his ability to observe or get into the human mind in the way that we see multiple instances through this story really lack empathy with other humans. The narrator describes him as having a vacant stare a lot of time when he's doing this analytical trick. But we're not told the story of the murders at the end from the point of view of Dupin or his analytic skill. We're told from this impassioned sailor. And this sailor relates to us, at least as it's related to us by the narrator, a really empathetic tale with this orangutan. In fact, I think the orangutan is the most empathetic, or should I say sympathetic character in this narrative. He fears... He is ashamed. He is out of his element. He's He acts out of control. He's forced into terrible circumstances while his owner carouses out on the town, not even really living up to his own story. And not that the orangutan would under, can't understand that the sailor's injured from a splinter on the ship and that what he, all he wants to do really is impress this master in some way. Now, the narrator doesn't know that when he understands the full horror of the murders, but I think we're meant to connect with that when we know the full horrors of the story, which is an innocent creature, in a sense, that commits these horrible acts and feels these resentments or remorses about it. That, to me, is the first thing that comes to mind when you ask the, kind of the full horror of the act. What the narrator was thinking at that point is unknown to me. But I think since you asked the question under the scope of globalization and the source of the strange is that there's some element here that this global shipping, porous borders, uh, slave trade, leave a very unpleasant impression on the narrator when he understands what has happened. Yeah, I think there are a number of ways to read this. And by putting this question in this category, as you suggest, 
I was thinking about the exoticism of the whole affair, that the orangutan itself is from Borneo, as far away as you can get and still be on the planet from Paris. The sailor himself is exotic. He is a, a Frenchman, but he has a regional accent that they detect. And he sails on a ship from Malta, which is uh, the least European place in Europe. And it is only because of this globalization, because of the, the continued expansion of European power and European connections throughout the world, that these two women are dead. That's right. And what he brings back is the cause of their death. You're right to point as well that this is invoking the slave trade. Uh, we'll get into that maybe in my, my second category a little bit more. But another thing I would point out here as well is that I really think that what the narrator is thinking of as the horror here is the question of motive. That they're trying to uncover who did this and why someone did this. And the full horror of the story is that there is no motive. That this is the universe. This is the world being random and chaotic and a harsh place, an unsafe, a dangerous place. Uh, and in particular, that, that you know humans do stuff with purpose. But this incident, the randomness of this is proof that may, the universe is a harsh place and maybe we aren't special. That's an interesting point. No motive means no intent, which means no possibility for justice. And I think we see by the end of the story that there's kind of an, a, a real sham when it comes to the justice of this event, and that Dupin isn't interested in justice. He's interested in knowing. And that is a real problem, in fact, when it comes to the detective stories in general, is that our detectives rely on the police in a certain way because they're interested in the puzzle not the criminal justice system, not justice for victims, not anything like that. And we see on both levels that the criminal justice system fails entirely <laughs> and that Dupin is not interested in getting justice. Well, let's stick with this question of justice, Brandon, because this is something else that I, I want to think about in the scope of globalization and, and massive social change at the dawn of high modernity. And I was thinking of this story, I've already pointed out maybe a little bit, I was thinking of this story in the context of the growth of cities that we see in this period. Uh, Paris in, say, 1830, along with London in 1830, uh, New York as well. These cities are twice as populated as they were a single generation before. They are going to double again in size before the century is out and continue to do this up until our own day. And that because of this rapid growth of cities, people are becoming more and more anonymous. There is more crime, in part because people are crowded. These are making poor living conditions. But the anonymity is also a part of that. And so is global mobility, which we see in this story, not just because there's an orangutan from Borneo, though, yes, that's a big example of it, but because almost all of the witnesses to this crime are foreigners. And our narrator himself, perhaps, is a foreigner living in Paris. Even the sailor, the Frenchman sailor, there is something exotic and something foreign about him as well. That's right. Dupin is the only truly French character in this story. And it really hadn't occurred to me that because of the mechanic, the functional need for all of the people who are deposed to be foreigners, that that's a major theme of this story is, is the influx of immigrants into these cities and, and why there need to be immigrants in these cities. What opportunities are created by the French, say, that 
there need to be immigrants to take those jobs? Or why are people fleeing their own countries? Why is national? Why are national boundaries breaking down? What I love about the deposition bit of this story is that each foreigner brings with them their own stereotypes of the other. They that shrill voice, that real enemy, the diabla of the story, is always the least preferred foreigner in the mind of the one who is deposed, the foreigner deposed. Yeah, you have a great observation here in pointing out that Dupin is the only sort of true Frenchman we get in this story because Dupin himself is a representation of the old regime, which is the old world. And clearly from this perspective is also the better world that he has, he himself is a victim of the injustice of the French Revolution, that it's the middle-class police force who've been elevated beyond their station to be enforcing the new regime who are incompetent. And it is only this last skin of the old regime, the aristocratic regime, that is able to figure out what has happened. There, there is a real critique here of the new world of high modernity that Poe is offering. Yeah, but I think Poe purposefully places Dupin's introduction with the introduction of the mansion. Dupin himself feels to me time-eaten and grotesque in this story. He's described primarily as a mind, right? So grotesqueries are usually characterized by a person where one feature is so overemphasized that it is that other features are lost in it. And this is kind of an aesthetic of the ugly. I read Dupin as a grotesque in this story. His mind is the biggest part of him at the cost of other faculties. And he is also time-eaten in the way the mansion is. That's interesting. And I think that's a really good reading of that. There's a lot to unpack there. And I I would love to hear what listeners have to say about that. But I don't think that I saw it that way. I, I actually saw this mansion as... Again, it's a holdover. It's an old mansion. It's a holdover from the Ancien Regime, from the old way of doing things before democracy overthrew the good French king. And we had all this globalization and all these foreigners coming to live in Paris and all this industry, not just foreigners, of course, it's it's lower class people coming uh, and really thronging Paris. That what's being shown here is that this house is in decay because in the absence of the aristocracy, there is a a moral bankruptcy in France, even as bankers themselves are beginning to run things. And I think that this theme comes through as well in the, even the pinning of the crime on the delivery man of the bank and the, the emphasis here on the money. But Poe, I think, really telling us that money shouldn't matter. That measuring aristocracy by wealth is bad, and measuring aristocracy by nobility of birth and ability of mind is what matters. And he's sort of looking back to that old world fondly, I think. Yeah, I think I was trying to say that both the mansion and Dupin are presented as victims of a certain nostalgic past that I don't know if this story is saying ought to return, but this story is definitely pointing to the dangers of the present. Yeah, I'd be real interested in, in, in hearing what listeners have to say about about this. I think it is an open question. Is Poe against 
globalization and modernity or is he is he for it does poe regret that the french revolution happened or does he not i think these are very important questions Uh, of course there's a ton of evidence that we could take into account besides just this story but i would say just reading this story my money is on that he ruse the french revolution so i would love to hear what listeners have to say about this but with that said brandon i think i want to transition us now into my second category for discussion here which is science and rationality as a new worldview There are four subtopics here that I think are going to be interesting. One is the scientific method and its wider applications. The other, we've already started to touch on this actually in our globalization discussion, is order versus chaos. Uh, Another category I'd like to talk about here is a creator god, question mark. And then finally, I want to talk about something else we've already brought up. I want to talk about race here. But I think let's just begin at the beginning. If we are going to talk about science, we ought to begin with a discussion of the scientific method and its wider applications. I just want to start by quoting Dupin here. Dupin lays it on the line here when he says, there is no method in their proceedings, only the method of the moment, right? So he is critiquing the police for not having a scientific method. And I read that as the method of the moment being kind of whatever is trendy. And and, and, and I take that reading based on the fact that he immediately launches into this critique of Vidoc. And for those of our listeners who are interested, there is a genuinely terrible Gerard Depardieu movie called Vidoc that you can watch if you so desire. But don't. It's so bad. The absence of method means that they are falling for any trendy method that anybody can provide them in terms of how to solve these new problems that are presented, as we just discussed, from globalization. The police are behind, not ahead of the curve here. So Brandon, a question that I have actually about this is I think like we all understand the scientific method and its utility in solving crimes. We've all seen one of the 17 varieties of CSI or NCIS, and we know that there is science that can be done to solve crimes. But what Poe is really showing us here is not so much science as it is the triumph of the rational mind. And this is related to the scientific method, but also distinct from it. But they are being developed in early modernity in tandem, in parallel. And in particular here, I think that it would be worth us going through and talking about how this story is really an endorsement of the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. And I think I'm going to kick this over to you as the the philosophy major in the room. (laughs) Well, it's been a while since I was a philosophy major, but I'll do what I can. I think this story is either read as a victory of the Enlightenment project in, in terms of the functioning of the rational mind, or as a total mockery of it. But I will start with with Immanuel Kant. I, um, it, this story reads to me as though Poe had just shut the cover on Critique of Pure Reason and said, I have all the tools I now need to come up with a new story. As I mentioned early on, it really struck me, even as I studied Critique of Pure Reason um, in college, that, of course, this is how the detective story comes to be. And it's no accident that Poe is using this specialized Kantian language like apprehension, intuition, imagination, creativity to describe this character of the great detective. And this is about the triumph of reason. What is the domain of the rational mind and what features does it have to operate in the world of manifold 
perceptions and intuitions. And Kant is working off of the history of the empiricist movement that was very big in England, um, included the works of John Locke and David Hume, and to some extent, George Barclay. And one of the problems that they're dealing with is what are even observations? And what is the work of the mind? What is the job of the intelligent mind in the world? And they're very, very, very interested in the mind itself. And one of the conclusions they come to that I think Kant builds on is that the work of the intelligent mind is to make connections between observations about the world, to be able to make these connections. And so I think Poe is really operating on a level that is rooted in this philosophy of the Enlightenment, particularly Critique of Pure Reason in, uh, written by Immanuel Kant. But what strikes me as so absurd in this story is that the solution, and this is why mystery writers later on had like a group of rules about what you can present as evidence in a story, I think, because of, of this first detective story, is that the solution is not something that the reader could ever come to without having the private information of the detective. To me, that's a problem with this story. <laughs> it's a little bit on the level of the absurd that we're somehow now told that it's an orangutan who's committing these crimes. And to me, it feels a little bit like a joke. Well, let's come back to the rules of the genre later in our discussion. And and for now, I kind of want to call back to something that I, I brought up real early uh, in, in the recap. I think before the recap proper had really even uh, begun, which is that I just don't care for Poe's understanding of the way that the mind works or or what is intelligent, what is the, what is the highest form of intelligence, which is this whole diatribe that he has at the beginning. Because it seems to me that the solution of... The problem here, and this is the feature of this Dupin story and all the the other two Dupin stories, as well as every Sherlock Holmes story, is that you don't actually have to be intelligent to solve the crime. What you have to do is be able to memorize a whole bunch of nonsense, a bunch of facts. You have to be able to read Wikipedia all day and retain that information. And then, yes, to make connections, to be able to recall that information— but I think that what Poe shows us here in operation is actually, I think, quite different from what these early modern philosophers really are positing about rationality. I'm not sure Poe's gotten it right, is what I'm trying to say. So there is a there is a sentence in here where the narrator points out that the trick of all this is to kind of know what to observe. It's You need to have that broad intelligence, but you also have to know what to observe, not to go back to the globalization thing, but this is really an effect of globalization. And th this is why this story reads to me almost like there's a level of satire here, because knowledge is best served when it's local and impactful. Um, so I'm a big fan of the critique of the Enlightenment, which the basic line of that is people are not rational, they're historical beings. And historical beings also have bodies. Um, and that's something that is not a feature of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is not so much about body knowledge or embodied knowledge. It's about pure reason, pure rational knowledge, pure observation. How can we move beyond the distance between the representation of the thing and our perception of it? So I want to point out that Knowing what to observe when the domain is limited to a game like checkers or whist, 
is much different than knowing what to observe when you literally have a global encyclopedia of knowledge and 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 those things that you need to understand. And that's why I feel like Poe is kind of getting it wrong on purpose a little bit. Maybe he doesn't get it, but it reads like he gets it and he doesn't buy it. Well, that's a much more charitable reading than mine. And so I think I'm going to go with it. Poe is one of my absolute favorite writers. And so I, I want to think no ill of him. Yeah. And I mean, if if that's the case, and I'm sure it's not, but I want to believe that it is because this story is very intelligent. And it also does show that Poe really got a lot of what he read of Kant, that all of the imitators after him didn't get the joke. <laughs> That's a scholarly monograph waiting to be written there, Brandon. So um, I hope you have a few months uh, vacation time saved up so you can uh, you can get on that. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think with that, we can transition into the next subsection here, which is to talk about this battle between order and chaos that we see in this story, but that I think is also the hallmark of high modernity or or really is, is what brings about high modernity out of early modernity and the Middle Ages and antiquity. And one thing I just want to point out before we get into something that's a little more discursive is that according to Dupont and according to Poe, everything is subject to rules or to laws, even the mind, that the mind has rules that it has to has to obey. That is kind of just at the forefront of the story, and I think that we want, I want to see that maybe as a gauntlet that Poe is throwing down, and I want to, I want to pick that up, and I don't know, drawn pistols at, uh, at dusk, perhaps, <laughs> here. Uh, but I want to zoom in, Brandon, on a particular point that Poe raises here in the first demonstration of Dupin's crazy intellect when he is able to explain to the narrator his train of thought merely by observing his behavior. And in his explanation, Dupin brings up Epicurus and he brings up atomism. And I think again here, I'm going to invoke my privilege as the leader of this discussion and uh, kick this question back to you as the philosopher in the room. And just ask you maybe to, to tell me and to tell listeners a little bit about Epicurus and about atomism. And I'm going to have some follow-up questions, I, I expect. Epicurus was kind of the inventor of the scientific method. But of course, every movement needs a lot of people to follow. And he didn't have those followers in regard to his theories about the need for people to verify their understanding of the world with the observation of the physical world. And that was a big part of Epicurus's philosophy. The uh, physical world was a place that required observation and observers. And that's also part of atomism as well, as from what I understand, is that the functioning of the physical world is really rooted in these atoms. Of course, they didn't have the same model of the atom that we have. Just think of it as like the smallest thing floating around in free space. This was an intuition that he had, and it's really remarkable that he had it. From an ethical standpoint, Epicurus believed that pleasure was more the absence of pain and suffering than its own positive thing, and that the goal of the happy person, which is the goal that all ancient philosophy is caught up with, which is what does it mean to be happy, is that you should minimize suffering and pain to the greatest extent, and that pleasure would come from that. At the root of that, though, to go back to atomism, is that the world is essentially 
chaotic, that these atoms float around freely, and that there's something about the activity of these atoms, these units of being, that is connected in some way to our ability to live freely, that they can swerve. And in fact, I think Stephen Greenblatt wrote a book not too long ago um, that was really popular called Swerve that popularized these views of Epicurus. Epicurus was a contemporary of Aristotle's, and a lot of what we know about Epicurus actually comes from Aristotle's rejection of Epicurus, and in particular, his rejection of atomism. And the scientific movement of Europe, the scientific revolution that really begins its sort of slow journey in the 12th century Renaissance and maybe culminates in the Enlightenment, or really culminates here in the 19th century when Poe is writing, is an Aristotelian worldview. But even as that is coming to kind of fruition in the 19th century, science is actually leaving that behind, right? And we are beginning to realize that all of these empirical observations, these these urges to see order are maybe not bearing, are not borne out in reality. And so the question I want to pose to you, Brandon, is especially from a philosophical point of view, what is it about atomism that is scary for people in the, in the 19th century, for Poe's audience? How does atomism challenge their comfortable worldview? So you brought up categories which was a big part of the 19th century uh, portion of the Enlightenment, which was just this endless list-making and taxonomies after taxonomy after taxonomy that lulled people into this sense that the world was ordered beyond humanity's activity in the world, that there was an order beyond people's action. Uh, and, And this might go into your next question a little bit, a creator God. <laughs> um, <laughs> but really, the, the the scariness is here is that humans are responsible for order in the world alone, that we create our own order, that once we realize that these categories are false and ideal um, in a platonic sense, that they are pure ideas meant to help us understand. Uh, at this time, you also have pragmatism coming out which uh which is an idea that like ideas are like tools that help us understand the world and so once you have these ideas that give people a real sense of security about the world this orangutan is of that we can name its genus and species we know where it's from that somehow knowledge is a barrier a wall that protects us from chaos is breaking down when we realize that these are categories that are indeed artificial. And it's not that artificial is bad. It's that we made them up to help us explain the things that we saw. They're not part of the nature of the thing. In fact, the way we interact with the world is part of our nature and not not a fact of the world, though it becomes a fact of the world because we are in this global system of interaction with our environment, with creatures and, and things like that. So atomism is this idea um, uh, that uh, the universe is essentially chaotic and <laughs> doesn't, doesn't have an interest in us. And this is the roots of cosmic horror as well. Yeah. And that observation there, Brandon, is exactly why at the top of the show, I said, without this story, we don't get Lovecraft's brand of weird fiction, that cosmic horror brand of weird fiction. It is, I think, 
the central theme here. And I think you're so right as well to point out that the competition between order and chaos here in the 19th century and the late 18th century is wrapped up in taxonomies. It's wrapped up in this mental exercise of labeling everything and making boxes for everything with these labels to go into, boxes that are impermeable and inviolate. And we see that played out here in this story. Every witness is described by his or her national and linguistic identity. Dupin has, for some reason, a taxonomic guide to animals just hanging around their rented house. Even the way that Dupin knows that the sailor is Maltese is because the knots that he ties are of a Maltese kind. And the and, ribbon in his hair and the pony, his hairstyle, like, which indicates a hairstyle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it can't, there's no room there for that to be mimicry. If you have those things, you have to be Maltese. And even the sailor's accent, right, as, as I've brought up, is assessed to determine his origin within France. Everything has to be classified down to, uh, you know, I'll bring it back to Adamus. It has to, be, it has to be classified down to the very atomic level. And as you say, the horror of this story comes from the fact that this orangutan tries to break out of its taxonomical compartment by mimicking human behavior. It rejects our efforts to tell it what it is, but then at the same time also tries to be more like us. And that's, that is where the true horror comes from. And that is where we see this tension between order and chaos. Glenn, that's absolutely right. And I, I'm really glad you were able to summarize what we've been trying to say for the past five minutes and so succinctly because it's so crucial to the story. And it's so crucial to understand what weird fiction is really about. We live in chaos, not in order. And we fool ourselves with the safety of knowing when in fact the world is very dangerous and doesn't care for our categories of knowledge. Right. Well, let's move into this question of a creator God, because the question, I think, of whether or not we've been created or whether or not we're an accident is also at the heart of cosmic horror. And I think that if we zoom in on this, some of the particulars of the story, we can see the roots of that movement in weird fiction here as well. To get us going on this question about creation and about humanity's place in the universe, maybe humanity's special place in the universe, we need to go back to Dupin's first demonstration of his superior rational abilities when he reconstructs our narrator's train of thought. One of the elements, and in fact, it's the element that leads us to atomism in the first place, is that our narrator, upon picking himself up from the pavement, happens to glance at the nebula that is in the constellation Orion's belt. This is an oblique reference to what is called the nebular hypothesis. Uh, In particular, this is a reference to a book by Dr. Nichol called The Views of the Architecture of the Heavens that was really popular at the time that Poe was writing this story and that describes new astronomical thinking about the origins of the universe without a divine creator, but merely as physics. And the nebular hypothesis is that everything we know originated as gaseous material. And this is the dominant scientific view of creation today. So we are comfortable in this. But this is some real serious cosmic horror stuff. If you're living in the 19th century or the early, even mid 20th century, when 
everything that you know is that we're special and that we're not an accident. And so this really challenges the worldview of Europeans and Americans. Uh, and there was a staunch resistance to it, especially by some Christian thinkers. Yeah, I had not really thought to make that connection um, what, d- during the story because I, I was so caught up in Dupin's absurd recollection of events on behalf of our narrator. But it's interesting because it ties into Epicurean philosophy and that Epicurus wasn't necessarily committed to a need to believe in the gods or at least a god who is interested in the affairs of humanity. He was not a Greek who was committed to that view. And, um, you know, one thing he did realize is that maybe religious experiences and religious behavior is important to people. It definitely plays a function in our society and a meaningful one at that. But let's leave that to those guys and let's focus on what we can really perceive and observe and understand. And both Epicurus and Kant seem to have had this view. And it's a view that doesn't necessarily exclude a creator God in terms of creating human consciousness, which is what we're really talking about, the faculties of reason. But it does exclude the view of an interested God. And there's another bit in this silly and ridiculous, I think is how we described it, Brandon, this this explanation of what the narrator is thinking that's that's put together by Dupin. And it, it, it's it's related to this use or this mention of the nebula in Orion, this mention of Orion. Uh, we didn't put this in the recap because why on earth would we? But at the end of that recap, Dupin and the narrator share a little joke where they quote some Latin to each other. And this is where, you know, I've, I've been kicking things over to you as the philosopher in the room, but I have a degree in Latin. So this is where it is it's my turn to focus on on my area of expertise. And the Latin line is this, it is Perdidit Antiquam Litera Prima Sonum. And this line is from a work by the Roman poet Ovid, who is uh, one of my favorite writers of all time. I spent a full semester of undergraduate Latin reading nothing but Ovid. Ovid lived during the time of Augustus, uh, or if you prefer, during the time of Christ. He is a golden age Latin writer. And this line comes from his poem, The Fasti, which is a very long poem. It's, it's really what we would call today a novel. And this explores the origins and traditions of Roman holidays. And the line that we get here comes from the section that narrates the birth of Orion. That's the connection with all of this. But the philosophical or the thematic connection between the nebular hypothesis, this modern scientific notion that we're just gas, we're not special, we're an accident. The connection between that and Ovid's poem, or, or what we might say as, as Greco-Roman mythology, classical mythology, is that these lines are about the birth of Orion. And Orion, who is a human, is nonetheless not born from a man and a woman reproducing but from some entirely accidental process. And that's the, that's the thematic connection here. And so Poe again and again 
in like just these two lines of name dropping is telling his obnoxiously erudite audience of the 19th century, <laughs> all of whom can read Greek and Latin. Right. Everyone reading this story, subscribing to Graham's magazine, can read Greek and Latin. They know this is, they don't have to translate this line. They just read it. So they know what he is referring to here. And he is doubling up with these two references on exploiting 19th century Europeans and Americans' anxiety about the tension between science and religion, that he is pointing out here that that we have both from embracing the ancient world and embracing contemporary science, a sort of two-front war on Christianity's notion that humans have a special place in the universe. This is being assaulted on both of these fronts, and Poe is emphasizing that here as a central theme of the story. It's so backgrounded in the text. It's so not an explicit theme for modern readers because we we already have these assumptions that drawing those background understandings of the readers, uh, the contemporary readers of Poe to the forefront is absolutely crucial to understanding how this story functions as a narrative. And we'll find ourselves reading books today from like the 1920s and 1930s that have assumptions buried within them that without having lived through that time, it's really hard to understand. And that's part of what makes this story so great is that though it's a little bit of pulp mystery writing, number one, it's the invention of a new genre. Number two, it is absolutely caught up in the contemporary concerns of its readers in a way that demands an engagement for our contemporary audience that is unusual for a pulp story like we'd read today. Yeah, that's a great observation, Brandon. This story today, I think, like, right, this story to anyone reading it now, to me when I'm rereading it, when I mention this to someone, you know, casually at work, at the bar, at the coffee shop, they'll say, oh, is that the one where the monkey did it or something like that, right? It's, we have a trite, uh, view of this story, even while we understand its its literary significance, but this story was packed full of controversy. This was as controversial a story as you could have in the 19th century, that I can't imagine anyone who read this complacently and just said, that was a good yarn. Poe is throwing down gauntlet after gauntlet here. He is challenging people's worldviews. He's calling into question everything that his audience thinks they know about the universe, but then also calling into question the questions as well, I think as we've seen him do in each of these categories that we've looked at so far. That highlights something that both you and I absolutely love about genre fiction that, you know, kind of the broader scope of literary fiction misses is that genre fiction carries within it all the assumptions that you need to understand it without making them explicit. And when you do make them explicit, you're unlocking new realities, new ways of understanding. And pulp and genre fiction are often the best modes of delivering new ideas and new understandings about the world to its readers because it carries, it doesn't have to explain anything. But when you go back, you're often at a loss to understand what the hell the writer was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's going to lead, I think, very nicely into our next uh, subsection here about race. Now, we've already actually dealt with many of the questions that I had in this category. You've already astutely pointed out that the word orangutan means wild man of the forest or jungle man or something like that in the Malay language. Uh, We've talked about 
taxonomies and classifications of of animals and seeing humans really as a as a type of animal and being perhaps concerned about orangutans being too much like humans we've seen in this in the the real plot device of the imitation of his captor or his master there are a couple things though still that i want to point out here one thing i want to point out and one thing i want us really to talk about but i want to say that there's a a discourse in this story on the various languages in play right their classification but also their evolutionary stages that sees indo-european at the top and Asiatic and African languages at the bottom. There's a, a great line between Dupin here. But what's important for us talking about race is that when Dupin is talking about, when he's explaining that, the languages of all of the witnesses suggest that the thing that they're all hearing as foreign language means that it can't possibly be any European language, the sound that the murderer is making, that he is dismissive of the narrator's objection that, well, maybe it's an Asian language or maybe it's an African language, that Dupin is able to leap over that and say, no, it's a non-human language. So there's automatically this suggestion that the boundary or the distance between an African language or an Asian language and a non-human language is much smaller, much narrower than the gap between a European language and an Asian or an African language. Yeah, and it speaks to taxonomies. One thing we haven't brought up yet is that there's also a mention of phrenology in this story, particularly in relation to the organ that allows for the analytic person to have the mind that they have. So, the, you know, by bringing up phrenology, which is the study of the skull as it relates to intelligence, or even more importantly, it, this was a racial science. It was made up to explain why white people were better than every other race. And it had to do with the contours of the skull. And one of the arguments um, that Poe actually dismisses in this story is that the analytic mind includes, and, and I think in this story it's an explicitly white mind, includes a separate organ that is responsible for the powers of analysis. And so you have here, again, this obsession with categorizing, classifying, and tax taxonomizing. And when you're doing that with languages, again, you see behind, now with the distance of time, the racial assumptions underneath all of these claims. Um, the narrator's claims that the African and Asiatic languages are so unfamiliar to anybody of uh, Indo-European upbringing that they might not even register as human sounds. While Dupin is the only one that says, because he's the most invested in this new science, that actually all languages have sounds that are discernible by <laughs> the human ear, and that somebody would recognize whatever is being spoken as a speech pattern of some kind. Yeah, and there is this real sense that if the sounds that an orangutan makes can be mistaken for human speech... What is it that defines humans? What is it that separates humans from our closest animal relatives? And we can see this here in the impetus for the crime to begin with, which is that the orangutan wants to imitate its master, and it wants to imitate this human by shaving its facial hair. And that because it has, it flees then with this razor in its hand, this is where the murder happens. But we can 
really even look here too that this is actually a critique of of humanity really looking at the orangutan actually as an innocent killer that accidentally imitates humans who are purposeful killers we assume when we see a dead human body that another human has done this on purpose that's our assumption that's our worldview and the only crime this orangutan commits is to try to be more human and in trying to be more human it commits murder yeah, absolutely. And there's a real fear here, um, again, to bring up, uh, to make the connection to slavery explicit, that when you have all of these scientific arguments for why a type of person is less than another type of person, how can you expect justice when they commit a crime? How do you evaluate their culpability in criminal activity? This was a actually a big part of Kant's ethics as well is culpability, and um, this is a foundation for our legal system today, is an argument from insanity. We have a plea available or a condition or a state of mind that our court system allows for human beings to be less culpable for their behavior because they are acting as a force of nature. You don't sentence a hurricane to prison for blowing down a trailer in the same way you don't treat an insane person who has committed a crime the same way as somebody who is in full command of their rational faculties. And um, that that's another thing that's going on here. <laughs> this is a an, just an outrageous critique of the criminal justice system. This story is a real provocation to its readers. What can you do if you're classifying people as different races? If if people in the human race are far down on the taxonomy, how are they different from a natural act in terms of criminal culpability? Well, I think that brings up a great point about the mission of Christianity, which is the religion of Poe, it's the religion of Dupin, the religion of our unnamed narrator. It's the religion of almost everyone who is going to read this story. And it is the religion that shapes the worldview that these things such as the nebular hypothesis and taxonomical observations about animals are calling into question, are, are challenging. And I want to equate that. I want to bring that back to this, these questions about race and questions about slavery. One thing that is extraordinarily interesting about the 19th century is that it sees simultaneously the rise of racism, the invention of race as a category on scientific means, and also the notion that this population of African slaves in the New World ought to be freed. These two things are actually, they seem antithetical to us, but yet they're happening at the same time. One of the moral issues with continuing to have slaves is that slaves in the New World have all been Christianized at this point. How can Christians enslave other Christians is a fundamental question. And I think that this is something that Poe is looking at here when he focuses so much on this orangutan imitating his European captor is this question of what happens when the people we've captured start to be more like us. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely the subtext of this story. And and it's it's what makes it as I said before so provocative. You are changing the category of humanity. First of all, on the big cosmological scale, what if humans are an accident? Okay, so maybe we can ignore that question. But what if a 
group of people we've ignored as human beings and created a whole category of knowledge to explain why they're not people. Phrenology. What if we finally admit that that is a fake science, which we did (laughs) eventually. Um, What if we finally admit that and say, okay, now there are people. What are the consequences of that? What is our culpability in all of this? Um, Listen, there was no easy solution to the problem of slavery in the West. The easy solution is obviously we'll just free them. But you have a whole society based on forms of knowledge that reinforce their inferiority to to white people. You have an economic system that requires their enslavement. And then you begin to have a religious movement that says, actually, they're, they're people. And we're not basing that on knowledge. We're not basing our critique of this horrific system on any new form of knowledge. We're doing it because... They're people. They're human beings. They're indistinguishable from human beings. It is an absolute epistemological mess. There's no real rationality here. Like, there's no rationale in the story for the solution to the mystery. It's chaos. It is chaos. And it is a bunch of people trying to find their way through that chaos with moral arguments, with scientific arguments, with economic arguments, with every resource that civilization has provided its citizens. This Western world is trying to figure out how to easily stop enslaving a whole population of human beings. Brandon, you point to an amazing number of questions that this story raises. And I'm just going to lay it on the line here and say that for me as a reader here in the early 21st century reading this story with some pretty good historical knowledge, I can't tell in this story if Poe is for racism, if he's against racism, if he's for slavery, if he's against slavery. There are so many ways to read the orangutan here. You pointed out he's the most sympathetic character in the whole story. He murders, perhaps, because he's being maltreated by someone who has captured him, someone who has taken him away from his home and has locked him up in a closet and perhaps even denied his sentience, right? What we might actually even say has denied his humanity. And as a result, there's anger and rage. That's one reading of it. And that's going to be a critique of slavery. That's going to suggest that we shouldn't do that to other people. That, that's right. And, 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 and there's also another way to read it that's confounding and and with though poe dismisses phrenology the orangutan is the murderer he is the thing to be feared he is the wild man in from the woods and he's the one who in his attempt to move above his position as creature creates fear not only in his captor but ends up murdering these two women out of Perhaps the shame that is rooted in this imitation of behavior, and he does this first by re-attempting this imitation of shaving his face, where he tries to just take this woman and he doesn't understand her fear because shaving is something he sees happen every single day from his only point of contact in the human world, from his closet. And so it's unclear to me if this imitation of civilized behavior 
is what Poe is critiquing here, of what we need to fear, of them becoming like us. If he's trying to really create a dichotomy between the them and us. And you can't tell from reading this story where Poe stands. But the great thing about this story and about great genre fiction, about great pulp fiction, is that it forces you as a reader to ask these questions and answer them for yourself. And it's because it's so deeply buried in historical debris (laughs) that we're forced to engage with it on the level that we are. I don't think there could be a finer summation to our discussion of the murders in the room morgue proper. So I think with that, Brandon, I'm going to transition us into uh, what will be a a much more lighthearted, I hope, uh, discussion about the connections between this singular Poe story and the oeuvre of H.P. Lovecraft. But I want to start actually by just taking one more minute to dwell on this question of race and, and issues of racism, just to say that, that it, is, it is no secret to anyone who's ever read a single Lovecraft story that H.P. Lovecraft himself was someone who bought into the scientific racism that is in, in its nativity here in this Poe story that we've been discussing, and that one of, I think, the direct connections between the work of H.P. Lovecraft and The Murders in the Rue Morgue is Lovecraft's story, Facts Concerning the Late Arthur Germain and His Family, in which the horror of the story is that the narrator discovers that his ancestor is a non-human primate is, is an ape a white Africa. ape yes yeah but i think that we can i think we can safely set that aside we can take that as as given we can take that as written and and talk about some of the the more lighthearted, some of the more genre uh, some of the more narratological comparisons between lovecraft the work of lovecraft and this story and i'll just start off brandon i think by pointing out two things that we've been talking about already and uh, the first is that science says that humans don't matter And for Lovecraft and for Poe here in this story, that is its own kind of horror. So much of Western civilization takes as a given that humans are special, that we've been created by someone in the image of that person. We are like our creator and our creator cares about us. But in this story and in all of Lovecraft, that's not true. And that's the scariest thing will ever face. It's a true confrontation with a void, the absence at the pinnacle of authority, that when we're reaching in the dark for something that we need, we not only find that it's not there, but that what is there is something worse (laughs) than we had imagined previously. I think, uh, not to call to our Gene Wolfe literary podcast too much, but Gene Wolfe does this expertly, um, this kind of groping around in the dark in um, particularly in the book of the new sun. But yeah, it's that real sense that our, our anxieties about existence come from a certain repressed innate knowledge that there's nothing more than us out there. And that is a source of horror for, for many people, including some of our favorite writers. Right. And, and and you said groping around in the dark, which is perfect. That is, that's the other thing. That's the other most direct connection here, where without this story, we don't get Lovecraft's version of weird fiction. 
which is that this is a story about an investigation leading to unexpected and horrifying discoveries. And that is, it's not what every Lovecraft story does, but it is probably what the most memorable and the most remarkable, the most influential of the Lovecraft stories do. That's The Call of Cthulhu. It's very directly the horror at Red Hook and a spate of other stories. They're not always detectives. They are at the horror at Red Hook. But it is an investigator. It is someone who is searching for knowledge and thinks that there's an, there's an expected answer. But the answer the investigator finds is something horrifically unexpected. And of course, for Lovecraft, the investigator always goes insane. Here in Poe, we're assured of several more stories. Lovecraft's investigators are really always investigating something that you'd call like an, an event, which is a, it's a violent confrontation with a new kind of narrative that you have no framework for. And so what Lovecraft is able to do is rely heavily upon this scientific framework. We have university professors, we have detectives, we have intelligent people who are building a home, they're professionals, and they go somewhere and what they confront is something that is so far outside of the realm, it's not necessarily of the explainable, though it often is in in, in Lovecraft's language. It's too far outside of the system to even have language to describe. And this is something that I think many readers find clunky and difficult about Lovecraft is his his frequent use of phrases like inexplicable horror or undescribable terror and things like that. But the reality is, is that when we are confronted with something that is beyond the limits of our categories to describe, language does fail us. And it's something that when I was first reading Lovecraft, I encountered this kind of laziness. But as I really dug into his nearly nihilistic worldview of cosmological horror, you understand that he can't describe what he's doing because it is beyond the limits of language to describe. And I think this goes back to Lovecraft's answer maybe to Dupin and Sherlock Holmes, which is they do not have limits to systems of knowledge. They are endlessly learning and their ability to know and categorize never fails them in the face of a puzzle. And for Lovecraft's protagonists, they're frequently failed by their knowledge. And this is a a real critique of the Enlightenment project in general as well. You're right. Lovecraft takes this, not just one, but several steps further that if Lovecraft were writing The Murders in the Rue Morgue, our narrator would have gone insane from the discovery of this knowledge because the narrator would have felt fully the extent to which this challenges his worldview and calls into question everything he knows. In many ways, although Poe, we have demonstrated, I I hope, through our discussion that Poe is calling attention to these questions, he's doing so in an intellectual and a rational way. But when we get to Lovecraft, Lovecraft is doing this in an emotional way. Lovecraft is pointing out how discovering this about the world, about the universe, becoming aware of these horrors is not something that we can actually deal with. And that's a real move. That's actually where we can see the divide between Poe and Lovecraft is Poe is still writing in, a, in, in this late 18th, early 19th century mode. And Lovecraft, though I think 
Lovecraft's critics would say that Lovecraft is not writing enough about the emotional experience or the interior, the internal experience of his characters. He is taking it further than than his own models do, for sure. Absolutely. And part of that emotional stance, I would say, ties directly to what I brought up earlier as the critique of the Enlightenment. His characters are obsessed with the history that forms them. And that is a direct line of reasoning, if you could call it that, at least logical conclusion, that is in conflict with the conclusions of the Enlightenment that man is a rational actor. In the Murders in the Room work, all the characters are rational except for the orangutan. In Lovecraft's story, they're all orangutans. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's and that's the real horror, I think, as we've already talked about. So, Brandon, I'll, I'll transition us into some some more lighthearted comparisons here, some things where we can we can be a little jovial and, and maybe poke a little fun at these things that we love so much. I've already talked about how in Sea Auguste Dupin, we have this impoverished nobility who demonstrates superior moral qualities that this this suffuses Lovecraft's oeuvre, but also suffuses Lovecraft's own conception of himself. But I also want to point out that there are, in this story, two dudes living together and teaming up out of a mutual love of obscure learning, which might describe us, I suppose, <laughs> doing this podcast. We've... Yeah, I think, I think so. I think that's right. <laughs> so, so I'll poke fun at us as well as at these stories that we love. But this is a real thing that Lovecraft picks up out of this story. It's a, it's a huge feature in a number of his stories. I'll just point to one, which is to say, or I'll point to two, because why not? Uh, the Statement of Randolph Carter is a big one, but probably the biggest one, actually, is Herbert West Reanimator. But two dudes living together because they love knowing stuff and being smart guys is a, a real feature of Lovecraft stories. And I think it's something that we in the 21st century tend to poke fun at a little bit in, in Lovecraft stories, but he's taken it from Poe. He's taken it from this story. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the kind of the male friendship relationship is something that had a, like a brief resurgence after the Lord of the Rings movies came out in popular culture like there were a few movies that were made that people called like bromances because they followed the the tropes of the romantic comedy but it was about like two guys being friends and then like quickly died off but this is something our culture really has a hard time accepting is is male friendship and it's here in these stories it's in poe it's in um many great fantasy novels and 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 uh we got to see it in our day very briefly in the late 2000s. <laughs> right. The the last thing that I'll bring up here, Brandon, is that a feature of this story, this story hinges entirely on our two friends who are living together out of their mutual love of bizarre zoological tracts, Ovid's poetry, and Epicurean philosophy, apparently, also like to walk around the city. They like to walk around Paris together at night. And this is also a feature in Lovecraft stories, and I will, I'll just point to two that deal with this. One, there's an amazing, beautiful connection between The Murders in the Rue Morgue and Lovecraft's story, The Music of Eric Zahn, the, the framing device of which deals with a narrator who once lived in Paris, but can now, upon revisiting Paris, no longer find the street where he used to live. It is this, this walking around the city, being overwhelmed by how expansive and 
all-encompassing it is, how the city is a universe in itself. And that's a really beautiful thing that Lovecraft picks up on from this story. It's wonderful. Cities are different places at night than they are during the day. And the, the kind of the real character of a city always reveals itself at night. And I think it's no accident that the evening paper picks up on these murders in, in this story. It's no accident that, uh, once again, referring to our Gene Wolfe podcast, that the Book of the Long Sun is very concerned with this dichotomy of the city between the day and the night. Um, it is a wonderful, wonderful theme. And, and, I, and I think um, you can learn a lot by walking around a city in the evening and perhaps find your own adventure to go on as well. Well, Brandon, speaking of adventures, I think it's time for us to close the book on this story and go have some adventures of our own. Perhaps we'll walk around this fine city that we both live in together. So I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the murders in the room morgue. And perhaps more importantly, uh, take up our writing prompts and send us your stories. Let us know on the forums what you've written. Yeah, I want to know more of what you think this narrator is up to. Next time, we'll be reading The Frolic by Thomas Ligotti, which you can find in the Penguins Classics edition, Songs of a Dead Dreamer, and Grim Scribe. Until then, we greet you and we say farewell.